0: Hello, and welcome to the Saga of Japan podcast. Episode 4, The Korean Kingdoms Last time, we entered the Kofun period of Japanese history, with clans such as the Soga constantly vying for control of the imperial house. Soon the Yamato Kingdom would rise not just as a small power in Honshu, but a regional power dealing with China and the Korean Kingdoms. For the Korean Kingdoms, there are three that we need to know about. First is Kudara, a kingdom generally aligned with the Yamato state, on the western coast of what is today South Korea. Next, there is Shiragi, the smaller kingdom on the eastern coast of South Korea, who soon would be at war with Yamato. Finally, the powerful northern state named Koguryo. Evidence of a relationship between Kudara and Yamato appears as early as 369 CE in the form of Shichishito, known as Seven Pronged Sword. This is a Japanese national treasure you can still see today. The sword has made its way into all forms of media. If you play video games, as I myself do, you've likely seen incarnations and variations of the design several times, perhaps without even realizing it. On the sword is an inscription, with a date of 369, making it over 1,600 years old. Unfortunately, due to rust, not all characters on the sword are decipherable. We also can see who it was made for, a Yamato king. A century later, in 498 CE, Emperor Berezu will ascend to the throne. Between him and Emperor Yuryaku, there had been three emperors over the span of almost twenty years. This is not uncommon when looking at dates for these early rulers, indicating chaos. We will not dive into each of these emperors for a couple reasons. The biggest one is that for the majority of these emperors, there is scarce or no sources about them other than maybe a passing mention, trivia fact, or in some cases only the dates they reigned. Secondly. We have to remember that many of the early ones, particularly the first 16, are likely mythological to some extent, if not invented entirely. Emperor Buretsu himself is actually the 25th emperor of Japan, although that is counting the likely mythical 16 emperors. Buretsu, according to a probably biased Japanese chronicler, was gluttonous and cruel. He was even rumored to have an alcohol pool in meat forest. In my opinion, this was the height of luxury where a pool would be filled with alcohol, and branches of skewers wrapped in meat would hang overhead from a small island in the center of the pool. The ruler and his ladies would float idly around the pool in small boats. When you were thirsty, you reached into the pool, and when hungry, just took a piece of meat from above. Say what you will about Emperor Berezu, but he knew how to relax. Even so, Beretsu was also reported to have committed terrible acts, such as forcing a man to climb a tree and when he reaches the top, shooting him with a bow. Sometimes he would have men climb to the top of trees and then chop the tree down. Really, just a suspicious amount of tree-related tortures. It's difficult to know how much of this was fabricated, in order to make his successor seem more virtuous and more worthy of the throne. This happens frequently in every civilization I've studied, and is not uniquely Japanese. When Emperor Buretsu died in 506 CE, just a few years later, the Ultimo clan, led by a man named Kanamura, placed Emperor Keitai on the throne. The three Korean kingdoms were plagued by war, with Kudara and Chiragi, in particular, fighting each other. The emperor was pushed by some in the imperial court to send expeditionary forces to Korea to moderate, but reinforcements could not be provided or were slowed down, as chieftains in more remote parts of Japan openly took bribes in order to sell off parts of land in Korea that Yamato had laid claim to. Even Minister Kanemura himself, was rumored to be taking such bribes, not only selling parcels of land to the kingdom of Shiragi, but also to Kudara. The extent of this corruption in the Yamato court was staggering. Facing mounting pressure to stop these actions and to check the power of Shiragi, the emperor sent tens of thousands of soldiers, led by the Mononobe clan in 527. Rebelling chieftains in Kyushu, however, meant that troops had to be diverted to put the rebellions down. When they finally did reach the southern part of the Korean peninsula two years later, the commander was unable to bring Kudara and Shiragi to the negotiating table. Among one of the problems for discussion was the children of mixed ancestry, which the Nihon Shoki describes as Japanese and barbarians. Many argued that being mixed, they could not truly be Japanese. Once more, the boiling water and the cauldron technique was used to prove if the children were true Japanese. You can imagine how that went. Clearly incompetent, the commander was recalled after the complaints. At first, he actually refused orders to return, under the pretense that he could not leave until he had accomplished the emperor's task. Eventually, the locals had enough of him themselves and kicked him out. But, unfortunately, he died on the journey home. Finally, a skilled diplomat makes it past Kyushu and the isolated chiefdoms and begins negotiating with the ruler of Kudara. At the end of the negotiations, they agree to reinforce each other. But why did Yamato even care who won the war between Kudara and Shiragi? In exchange for this partnership, Yamato likely wanted a foothold in the continent to supply iron ore for weapons and tools, a powerful technological advancement that could be used to expand their kingdom on the Japanese archipelago. All of these campaigns took so long that although Emperor Keitai, who dispatched the forces, took the throne in 507, it would not be until 552 that forces successfully delivered defeats to the kingdom of Shiragi, according to Japanese chroniclers. Even with the supposed Yamato victories, the Kudara kingdom was still defeated two years later. Soon after, Shiragi agreed to a truce with the Yamato. After decades of effort, Japan still lost the toehold they previously occupied on the continent. The loss was not necessarily due to lack of Yamato fighting ability. However, Shiragi had adopted Chinese ways of governance, which centralized authority and put power in the hands of a few people. Having centralized and efficient authority, proved to be an insurmountable advantage, especially when you compare it to the numerous small chieftains throughout western Japan and Kyushu, who had slowed down their forces and expeditions. That's not to say nothing came from the expeditions. A force sent in 522 brought back a gift from the king of Kudara, a bronze Buddha, complete with Buddhist scriptures and writings. In an attached letter, he explained the belief system's origins within India and sang its praises, quote, even Confucius has not attained knowledge of this doctrine. Imagine a man in possession of treasures to his heart's content, so that he might satisfy all wishes. Quote. We already know Buddhism had been widespread in parts of China. The messenger even says that there is no one in China who hears of Buddhism and does not appreciate it. These gifts were likely a symptom of the breadth of the belief system, and the traditional date that Buddhism is considered to have been brought to Japan is 552 according to the Nihon Shoki. The emperor was overjoyed, stating that they had never had the opportunity to listen to so wonderful a doctrine. He asked the clan leaders what they thought about the doctrine. Iname, the leader of the Soga clan we met at the end of last episode, stepped forward, stating that if all of East Asia supports it, how could Yamato not? The Soga and their allies within Yamato saw Korea as something to emulate and aspired to reform their losses in Korea demonstrated weakness by their inability to defeat the centralized Shiragi state. The Nakatomi, a traditional and conservative clan, had opposed sending forces to help Kadara, advocating a more isolationist policy. Buddhism as a foreign religion symbolized more foreign interference. Joined by the Mononobe clan, the Nakatomi told the emperor that worshipping a foreign deity would incur the wrath of the Shinto gods. More traditional factions, like the Nakatomi clan, saw it as a threat to the Yamato way of life. One major question is, how much of this was genuine religious belief, and how much of these debates were political intrigue disguised as religious belief? Probably at least a little of column A and a little of column B. The Mononobe were a clan of soldiers and experienced military leaders, leading many of the expeditions to Korea. The clan by this point had been well-established and strong for over 100 years, and to the Mononobe, force was as legitimate a method as peaceful diplomacy. Iname, opposed to the Nakatomi and the Mononobe, was convinced that Yamato must adapt or die. This meant giving more power to the emperor and centralizing authority. Conveniently, this meant giving his own family members more power. Listening to his advisors from each of the clans, the emperor contemplated what would be done with the Buddhist imagery. The emperor attempted to dodge the problem, by not accepting the gifts directly, but re-gifting them to Iname, who happily took the prize, creating a Buddhist temple out of his own home. We're told at this point that a pestilence begins to spread throughout Yamato, probably smallpox. The Nakatomi and the Mononobe seize on this as a perfect example of the god's anger. They convince the emperor that his mistake can still be corrected though. The emperor orders the image to be thrown into a river and the Soga Buddhist temple burned down. The next emperor, Bidatsu, would not help the spread of Buddhism, and their diplomatic approaches in Korea were not faring well. We can see this plainly in several encounters. For example, associates of the chief envoy to Korea received a warning that their corruption would soon be revealed by the chief envoy to the emperor, and so they hashed a plan to have him killed. The chief envoy found out, and so attempted to formulate a counterplan. It was at this point a ruffian with a club came forward and struck him on the head and then went away. Next came another ruffian, who also struck him on the head and hands before leaving. The chief envoy remained silent and wiped blood from his face. Then another ruffian came, who rushed forward with a sword and stabbed the envoy in the belly. The chief envoy prostrated himself on the ground with an attitude of supplication. Afterwards, there came another ruffian, who killed him and went away. End quote. We don't need Benny Hill music added to the soundtrack to understand how ridiculous the diplomatic situation was. One envoy even turns back on his journey because he is afraid that the whales in the ocean would swallow his ship. The emperor was not happy about this and moved the envoy to a province away from his home, the equivalent of the boss moving the incompetent worker to the empty basement where he can do less damage. Meanwhile in Yamato, Iname's son, Umako, would succeed him as great minister appointed by the Emperor Bidatsu. Umako was presented with another Buddhist relic. Immediately, he attempts to smash the relic with a hammer. The hammer, however, shatters, and so like the previous image of the Buddha, Umako threw the relic in the river, where it floated instead of sinking. In light of these events, Umako would become a devoted Buddhist. Due to close family ties, the groundwork for which was laid by Iname, Umako was able to secure permission to worship Buddha, although Bidatsu was not a big Buddha fan himself. When Bidatsu's queen dies, he marries one of Umako's sisters. This sister would eventually become the Empress Suiko in 593, but we'll get to that later. In 585, a smallpox epidemic ravages Yamato once more. Umako, undeterred, would build several more temples, and this time he also had a Korean practitioner visit and ordained three female followers to help spread the belief system. When the plague continued, the girls were punished by having their Buddhist clothing destroyed, and the images were thrown away, again, into a river. I'm not sure why they keep trying to drown the Buddhist relics, but so it goes, I suppose. When the plague continues on anyways, some people suspect that destroying the Buddhist relics is what's causing the disease. Umako approaches the emperor, suggesting as much. Once more, the emperor agreed to let Umako bring more practitioners from Korea, the Monanobe clan, led by a man called Moria, had become more powerful in the meantime. They strongly opposed this, conspiring with the Nakatomi and making several proposals that the temple should be burned down and the relics, you guessed it, cast into a river. They're nothing if not consistent. Fires were stoked between the two when the Emperor Bidatsu falls ill to the smallpox epidemic and dies. At the funeral, Umako gives his oration, armed with a sword. Moria mocks this saying he looks like a sparrow pierced by an arrow. When Moria, shaking with passion or sadness, delivers his funeral speech, Umako laughs out loud and says Moria should have bells hung on him. This is the beginning of a feud that will lead to bloodshed between the clans. Next time, tempers will rise and swords will be drawn, as the Mononobe and the Soga clan fight to decide who will become the next emperor of Japan. Thank you for listening to the Saga of Japan podcast. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. You can always shoot your questions over to twitter.com sagaofjapan saga of Japan. If you're a fan of the podcast, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, or tell a friend you think might enjoy the show about us. You have no idea how much I appreciate you joining us on this journey. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next Tuesday.